Have you ever been the recipient of a generous financial gift? On several occasions, I have been or have been with people who are, and the response is incredible. The recipient is overwhelmed by emotion that people would care that much about them. They feel seen and they feel cared about. On one or two occasions, I have been struck speechless, and that's saying something. I've most often seen this in the church, the people of God. When a person dies or a family is in crisis, we, the church, pool our resources, pull together, and fill in the gaps. There's so little we can do to change the situation, but we can feed the family. We can buy Christmas presents for the kids. We can take up an offering to offset health care or burial costs, and it is a joy and a privilege to do so. We are only mimicking the generosity God has shown us. We're concluding our four-week series today, Practice Not Perfect, where we've been looking at four practices God has given the church, as told in 1 Corinthians 12 to 16, to help us accomplish the mission God has given us. The mission of serving as his representatives here, his agents of justice and mercy and compassion, to literally be his hands and feet until he returns to this world to set it right. As we've seen, we do that through serving, loving, worshiping, and as we'll see today, through giving by tangibly meeting others' needs so that they too can know the generosity of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes what on the surface looks like a few throwaway sentences on this subject, but in reality are packed with wisdom, insight, and inspiration. I want us to look at these four verses and look at what Paul is asking us to do. Then we'll look at why we are to practice this. And finally, we'll look at how we can apply that in our context today. Are you ready? Good. Let's start with the what Paul asked them to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. As one of Christianity's founding leaders, Paul took responsibility for fundraising for the churches. And the church in Jerusalem is in need. We don't know why. We know from Acts 11:28 there was a famine in Jerusalem around this time, so it could be from that. We also know the church in Jerusalem experienced persecution and was scattered, so that could have contributed to their financial challenges. Whatever the cause, they were struggling, and Paul organized a fundraising campaign on their behalf that included several contributors, including Galatia. On the first day of the week. Now, we may miss this, but that early church would have noted that phrase. Why? Because they were followers of Jesus, and each one of the Gospels or biographies about Jesus included this phrase. On the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. You can see those references here on the screen. The first day of the week, 
is Resurrection Day. See, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, had been people of the seventh day. Following God's rhythm in creation, they celebrated the Sabbath and rested on the seventh day as God had. But Jesus' resurrection changed everything. And because of that, the early church recognized this and shifted their worship from the seventh day Saturday to the first day of the week Sunday as a way of regularly commemorating Jesus' resurrection, his victory over sin and death. Very soon after Jesus' resurrection, we see evidence of this shift in the New Testament. Here's a few examples on the screen. John 20, 19, Acts 20, verse 7, Revelation 1, verse 10. Paul could have said, once a week, do this. Or at the end of the week, when you get paid, do this. But no, on the first day of the week, on resurrection day, when you gather to worship, when you gather and remember all God has done for you, when you gather with people who are different from you, socially, ethnically, in age, vocation, when you remember Resurrection Day and just who it is you follow, engage in this practice. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside. You gotta remember, in the ancient Roman world of which Corinth was a part, giving was practiced, but it was done to enhance the wealthy and the powerful. Those who gave were called patrons and those who received were called clients and clients had to bow down and blow trumpets for the patrons who'd given to them. This is striking. Paul takes what had been a divider in the socioeconomic spectrum and flips it saying everybody's giving matters. Everybody's generosity counts, not just the rich. Each one has something to contribute. And if you were with us for the first week of this series on serving, that phrase should sound familiar. It, should, it echoes 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. I absolutely love how ambiguous this is. How much money do we give, Paul? What percentage? Paul leaves it to the conscience of the individual, and the only indication or clue he gives is in keeping with your income. Use what you've been given as a guideline for how much you give. This echoes the guidelines in the Old Testament about giving in proportion to how the Lord has blessed us. You can see those texts on the screen here. Deuteronomy 15, 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 16, 10 and 17. And this makes sense. You can't give what you don't have. One year from the time of this letter, Paul writes another letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians. And he reiterates this point, chapter 8. Verses 11 to 12, according to your means, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It is not helpful to look at our neighbor's giving to see how much we should be giving. It is a personal matter between us and God based upon what he has given to us. And trust me, you're going to love this. Here's the really fascinating part. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul does not want to rely on emotional manipulation for fundraising. In fact, 
He gives straightforward instruction on giving regularly and sacrificing specifically so he doesn't have to make an emotional appeal when he comes. Pastor John Ortberg tells the story of how Benjamin Franklin, a couple of centuries ago, went to hear a famous preacher in his day, George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin said he had some copper coins in his pocket, along with some silver dollars and five gold pieces. Franklin had decided ahead of time not to give any money at all. But as Whitfield talked about this orphanage he was raising money for, slowly he was worn down. He put in his copper coins first, then a little later, his silver ones, until eventually even his gold coins were given away. Now Franklin had brought a friend with him, and the friend had been told ahead of time how convincing Whitfield was, so he decided to go to the event without any money in his pockets so he wouldn't be swayed to give. How many of us have done that? But Whitfield was so good that this guy turns to the guy next to him and asks to borrow some money so he could put it in the offering. The guy next to him was a Quaker and said, At any other time, friend Hopkinson, I would lend to thee freely, but not now, for thee seems to be out of thy senses. Paul doesn't tell us to give only when we feel moved. He says, on the first day of the week, set it aside. Be intentional. You've heard of controlled spending, where we don't impulse buy. This is controlled giving. Set it aside regularly and systematically, rather than waiting to be swayed by emotion. Paul knows some of us might not ever give. We're dependent merely on emotion. Paul concludes with basic protocol here and a call for financial accountability many will find refreshing. Verses 3 to 4. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Remember, in the first century, there are no wire transfers. Money is in coins. This is going to be a lot of money, Paul hopes. That's a lot of heavy sacks of coins. They'll need several people to deliver this offering, to share the weight of the coins, and to travel in a pack as their safety in numbers. These letters of accreditation from Paul, customary in antiquity, will ensure they are received well, as well as assist in providing hospitality along their way in the travel. But note, Paul wants the church to pick their own delegates, their own people to bring the gift. He wants them to experience the joy of giving. He wants them to see firsthand the integrity of the enterprise, that the money raised really is going directly to the cause stated. And he wants to guard himself against any false accusations of dipping into the kitty himself. Here is financial transparency and accountability right there in the New Testament. If Paul needs to go along, he will, but only in addition to their representatives. He defends his protocol in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 20 to 21. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. This kind of financial accountability would put some Christian organizations today to shame. Most are pretty good. But once in a while, I hear about an organization that is not transparent 
were not careful to put wise safeguards in place, and it is not what Paul would encourage. Paul was a man of impeccable character, but he was also a man of practical wisdom. Paul knows he would never try to take the money off the side from what the other people had given him, but he wants to make sure that people know that. So he takes great pains to stay out of it. I have to say, I love the policies that have been established here at City Church. I know sometimes it's a bit inconvenient, but we really are seeking to be above reproach here. One time on December 31st, I ran into someone from the congregation at a nearby store, as can often happen, and the person said to me, oh good, I was gonna stop by the church to drop off my end of year check for giving. Can you just take it and drop it off for me? And I had to say, I'm sorry, but no. As a staff member, I can't receive any giving checks. Those must be submitted to the church office where we immediately document in your presence that the check was received and what its amount was and stamp it for deposit only. I explained why we do this. We want to make sure it's clear to everyone. We are not pocketing any money on the side. And she graciously received this. In fact, this person had been a guest at Alpha and responded, you know, that actually makes me appreciate this church more. My church growing up was nothing like that. Financial transparency and accountability is important. And any organization that says, just trust us, is not adhering to guidelines set out by the early church. There should be nothing to hide. We provide all our documents at our annual meeting and we expect and intend for you to ask questions and see where the money is going. Would that more Christian organizations would take Paul's throwaway lines here in 1 Corinthians 16 a bit more seriously. Okay, so that's the what of Paul's instructions to the church about giving. It's pretty straightforward. But why? Why is giving so important? Why include it in his instructions to this early church? There's a lot that could be said, but for today, I just want to highlight two reasons. Giving is good for us, and giving is good for others. It's good for the giver, and it's good for the receiver. Let's start with us. Giving is good for us, the giver. Why? Because the practice of giving helps us trust God more. There is nothing like giving money away to grow your trust in God. We can say we trust God, but until we put our money where our mouth is, it's just words. When we give God a portion of what he has given us, particularly at the beginning of the month, we are saying, we trust you, God, to provide what we need. You will come through. And we are willing to sacrifice our wants, which are many, so that your kingdom may come. See, finances are all about priorities. You know this. How many of us have been around someone complaining, oh, we don't have money for that, whatever that is, whether it's a visit to the dentist or gym membership or an educational opportunity for their kid, but in the same breath, the person is telling you about their recent trip to Disney World or Cancun or Venice. Now, for some, I realize finances really are limited and they are taking these kinds of trips. But it's astounding how many people don't have money for certain things, but they do have money 
for other things. That's because money, like time, is an accurate record of what matters to us. On the first day of the week, set money aside in keeping with what God has given you. Your resurrection day people, your followers of Jesus, you have kingdom priorities. Do this as an act of worship because all that you have and are is His. So show it by giving Him back a portion of what He has so graciously given to you. Jesus makes the point that money reveals our priorities in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We can have only one master. If it's Jesus, we will show that by how we choose to put our trust in him, not in a padded bank account, which we cannot take with us. If it's Jesus, we will have different priorities than most Americans. We will choose to forego many wants so that others' needs can be met. And as we do, as we pry our paws off what we have, we are released, freed from the grip that money and greed has on us. Generosity begets gratitude. We become more aware of how much we have been given. We live more lightly, freely. But giving is not just good for us. Giving is good for others, for the recipient. Giving to others is a tangible expression of God's love for others. In fact, that's in large part what's behind Paul's obsession with making sure this Gentile church in Corinth and Galatia gave to the struggling church in Jerusalem. It wasn't just because the church in Jerusalem was poor. It was because they were Jewish. Remember, Christianity has started exclusively as a Jewish sect. God had to make it clear, starting with Paul's ministry, that this news was for all people, including Gentiles. But those two groups still struggled to come together as one. There was still division between Jews and Gentiles. Paul's intent with this offering is more than just providing relief to a poor community. He wants to promote unity in the church. He wants these two groups still divided by centuries of cultural differences to see that they are one. If Paul can get the Gentile Christians to take up a huge collection and help the Jewish Christians, it will signal to both groups that they are now part of the same family. Gentiles get in on this, and Jewish people must accept the Gentiles as insiders, even though they aren't Jewish. We know this is Paul's agenda because he's a little worried about how this offering will be received by the Christians in Jerusalem. Romans 15, 31, pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem might be favorably received by the Lord's people there. The entire letter of 1 Corinthians, which has discouraged divisions, which has promoted love, now gives a practical way of living out both those ideals by giving money 
as a way of uniting both groups together. See, our faith is evidenced by action. Our love for God is shown by our love for others. And one particular way it's shown is by giving to others, others to whom we are one with in Christ. When we give to others, we demonstrate that we are in fact one body united in Christ. Some of you here regularly show God's love for others tangibly by your giving. You take a portion of what God is giving you and you pass it on to us and to other ministries and we are so grateful. All the ministry that happens here, all the children that are loved, the students that are taught, the meals that are served, the curious seekers that are welcomed and more, it all happens because of your generosity. I hope that you are regularly encouraged by all you are seeing God do here. But if you're here today as someone who calls City Church home and you want to start practicing giving more, either for your benefit or for others, here's a couple of thoughts on how to do that before we close. How can we live out this practice? To those with some money, and this is many of us here, we can get into the habit of giving. We can sign up for ACH automated payments to be deducted from our bank accounts right off the top before we miss it. We can make it the first check we write before paying any other bill. And in my experience, dropping that check in the offering basket just might be the most faith-filled thing we do on a Sunday morning, a beautiful act of worship. How much should you give? I can't tell you, in keeping with your income. A general rule of thumb has been a tithe or 10% of one's income. It's enough to curb our spending some, but not so much. We can't pay our bills. If 10% seems outrageous to you, maybe just start with 1% or 3% and increase it over the year gradually. For others, you won't even feel 10% because God has given you so much more. Be creative then in who and how you give. Some here may feel completely overwhelmed by the topic of giving. Maybe your finances are a mess. Maybe you struggle with impulse buying, or maybe you've just had some bad breaks in life. If that's you, I want to encourage you. Maybe the place for you to start today isn't to give, but to not spend, to decrease your debt to begin to get a handle on this. I encourage you to join us for the cash management class next Sunday where we'll learn how to monitor expenses. God does not want you to feel the burden of crushing debt. To those without much money, due to grad school or unemployment or whatever, you can still give. What do you have? If you're unemployed or retired, maybe you don't have a lot of money but you have time or expertise. Maybe you're already giving what you can financially, but you have something else you can offer for God's use, a cabin or an old car or an old appliance you're getting rid of. Now, these things may sound random to you, but in my experience, I found they are often not random. In God's economy, often a random thing you have to offer is someone else's answer to prayer. If you have not yet been to our practice room this month, this is our last week for it. 
Join us in the commons immediately after the service and volunteers there would love to help you figure out how you can give of your time or your money. And maybe it's not about giving. Maybe you just want to take another step in applying anything we've talked about this month. Practicing loving or practicing worshiping. You want help finding a group or signing up for mops or praying for others during worship, whatever. Stop by. We'd love to help you with your next step. These are all practices we can each grow in. City Church, let's practice giving generously. Let's practice giving because it's good for us and good for others. Because we want to become people free from attachment and dependence on our possessions. Because we want to become people whose hope and trust is in God. Because we want people around us to experience the generosity of our God by being his hands and his feet. For isn't that how God has acted towards us? Paul tells the church in Corinth a year later, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ, God himself, confined himself to the form of a human being, a baby nonetheless, so that he could identify with our sin and bury it forever in that grave. He gave his life so that we might live. Such is the generosity of our God. Would that we would live generous lives with others so that they might see the generosity of the one we seek to represent. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God, we thank you for how much you have given to us. We thank you for your generosity in so many ways, but namely, chiefly, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to experience his love and generosity that out of gratitude we would overflow in generosity and it would spill over onto others. Pry our paws off all that we hold dear, that we could give to you, serve you, and experience the joy of giving, and that people here, others watching, would experience your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name and always for the greater fame of his name. Amen.